0: You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast Episode 7 in which a new love interest enters the fray and she is packing her own brand of whoop-ass. Prepare to see Hornhead meet the Black Widow. Hello everyone, J. David Weeder here, the host who reads Daredevil comics, jots his thoughts down, then regurgitates them into a microphone for your entertainment and edification. This is Dave's Daredevil podcast, the result of said regurgitation, a weekly retreat into the radar-sense world of Marvel's man without fear. December is in full effect, and I'm sure the crowds at the malls and department stores are rabidly trying to kill one another for the latest, greatest material show of affection in this, the season of brotherly love. I wouldn't know because I barely leave the house during the Christmas season because it simply isn't worth it. It's not worth it for me. If my route to a required destination, as in a destination that I have no choice but to visit, takes me by a mall, I reroute and take the scenic route to avoid the crazy traffic. Now, I'm not talking about busy traffic. That requires a bit of patience, a bit of planning for time. Crazy traffic. Crazy traffic. People pulling out in front of, directly at other drivers, driving down the turn lane, ramping over things like Speed Racer trying to beat Racer X to the finish line. I don't have a Mach 5. I have no springs that launch my car into the air, and I don't drive an invulnerable car. I avoid all of it. It's one thing to be conscientious of other drivers and use defensive driving. It's another thing altogether to face down a soccer mom on a shopping bender in a scene that came right out of Mad Max. I bring this up to remind everyone, once again, don't be a douche. We're supposed to be nice to each other all the time, at least ideally. Don't sully a holiday that tries to celebrate humanity's compassion by turning the roads into Thunderdome. Two soccer moms can enter, two can leave. And if you don't get that ridiculously marked down deal on something your child is likely to love for three weeks and then discard, no harm, no foul. And I say this because I want my listeners to enjoy the holiday and remain in good cheer. And it would be nice if they weren't killed or in jail for the next year's episodes because... See how I segue seamlessly? Next year is going to be a nice slew of episodes. When I first began to look at doing this show as a real thing, not just an idea that would be fun, that would be nice. When I looked at what would be covered, the nuts and bolts of the thing, one name came to mind. Frank Miller. From the beginning, as I thought about issues to cover, Miller's run on the title and Born Again were in like Flynn. No question. It was going to get to it at one point one way or the other. In fact, that was kind of the tipping point that made the show a reality because, and this is me, anal retentive, remember it's hyphenated, the number of comics in the run proper and born again, so on and so forth, that would be included in such coverage would essentially take up nearly a year of podcasting in the single issue per episode format. So with the first episode of 2014, episode 10, we begin looking at Frank Miller's Daredevil Witch, You know, there are a lot of things that are overrated, or considered core reading, or definitive. I balk at a lot of those. Dark Knight Returns and Year One are both great, so is Killing Joke, but are they essential? Not sure. I'm not sure. That's not for me to judge. Sometimes you're just doing well to put that in a stack of books to read to keep other fans off your back. Now, as far as Frank Miller and Daredevil, yeah, Miller turned that on its ear. And really, in no uncertain terms, saved Daredevil the run... Whether Miller's just the artist or if he's the writer as well is solid. Brings a lot of things to the table that even Mark Wade is using today. The plan to help set you up correctly is to begin by covering, a bit oddly, Miller's 1993 miniseries, Man Without Fear. Mainly to get his take on the origin, to get us grounded in that world. And then we'll be moving on to the actual run of the book. There are some omissions. For example, Miller's first issue on the book. Uh, there's a Ditko fill in there. But the basic plan is for Man Without Fear, the run proper on Daredevil with a couple of those omissions, and love and war and then born again. So if that isn't a good reason for self-preservation and being nice to one another, I don't know what is. However, that is then. This is now. This week we see our beloved hornhead meeting a lady who will be one of his great romantic interests. And she's a solid Marvel character in her own right. Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. the Black Widow, Russian spy, Avenger, movie star, and hot redhead. That statement is full of win i didn't even mention the black jumpsuit yet so let's take a quick promo break and when we come back we shall look at daredevil number 81 featuring the black widow doing daredevil a solid
1: together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And run. Just run. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at 2TrueFreaks.com.
0: And we are back to look at Daredevil number 81, which begins a relationship that will change the book. I mean that literally, in this issue Daredevil and Black Widow meet for the first time, and this will result in the title being changed from Daredevil to Daredevil and the Black Widow. By now most audiences know the Black Widow or Natasha Romanoff for her affiliation with the Avengers as played by Scarlett Johansson, as well as its toy lines, video games, Halloween costumes, so on and so forth. But Black Widow originally began as a villain who set out to sabotage Iron Man and Hawkeye was helping her. But she eventually defected, traded her cliché dresses and hats for a badass outfit with a sting and grapple line shooter on her wrists, and became part of the Marvel pantheon of heroes. However, she was kind of wandering from book to book, making appearances in The Avengers and Spider-Man before a short run on her own backup strip in the Marvel book Amazing Adventures, sharing the comic with the Inhumans. The first time I saw Black Widow was in some Avengers back issues that came from that fabled box of coverless comics that I talked about in episode four, and I was kind of lukewarm. Um, Just to be honest, I didn't get into the Widow until some issues of the Daredevil run that we're going to be covering here and there. Bear in mind, I was eight years old, and it was Reagan era. She was Russian, which during the Cold War, Russian meant communist, which meant bad guy. I don't really have a defense for that thought process in a way, but again, I was eight or nine. I'm... Now in my mid-30s, I'm not going to spend time arguing about my prepubescent mindset in the nuclear threat-laden 80s. If I did that, it would mean that I would be explaining my obsession with the cartoon version of Punky Brewster and my crush on Beth from the laser tag cartoon, my disdain for Jamie Jaron. I'm just not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to take a look at the cover of the book, which is by Gil Kane. On the cover, Daredevil lies at the bottom of the page, underwater, unconscious, with debris in the mud. The Black Widow comes swimming down toward our hero with the text reading, Death is a Black Widow. The cover bothers me. I mean, the idea is fine, the art is finish, but the white border takes a lot of oomph out of the image. It doesn't submerge us. The biggest thing that bothers me, and just drives me crazy, is Daredevil's mask has open eye holes rather than the red lenses we're used to. You know, the lenses are there to hide Daredevil's blind eyes. And those eyes could be a tip-off that he's blind lawyer Matt Murdock. They're important. And I don't know why Kane left those off, unless it was to show that Daredevil's unconscious or that he, you know, just didn't care. But that's my nerd nitpicking at its finest, and I'm overlooking a redhead in a skin tight bodysuit to say that Daredevil's cowl isn't drawn correctly. That's right, you saw that. Beautiful woman on the cover, and I'm like, Daredevil's eyes aren't right. I need to look at my priorities a bit. Jean Colon, who did the art for the interior, actually draws a really extremely hot black widow within the interior of the book. Kane, however, gives her huge eyes on the cover, and they're open in the murk and the water. I mean, wide open. And with the exception of some bubbles, you wouldn't immediately know that this is supposed to be submerged in the water. But it's just a cover to a belos book at the time, right? The story is entitled And Death Is a Woman Called Widow was written by Jerry Conway, he who created Firestorm and co-created the Punisher. And this story is reprinted several places in Daredevil Volume 10 by Bendis and Maleev, as well as Marvel Milestones Ghost Rider Black Widow and Iceman. No, that's the whole title. And also in Essential Daredevil Volume 4. And as usual, it's on the Marvel Digital Unlimited subscription service. But let us crack open this issue and take a look at Daredevil number 81. The story begins after a fight with the owl, as semi-conscious Daredevil is sinking to the bottom of what appears to be the Hudson stuck to the casing of an airplane. As the water envelops Matt and he continues downward into the murkiness of the dark depths, Matt's last thoughts are of Karen. On the surface, the owl flies away, excited at his seeming victory, and Karen is back in town in time to see Daredevil's descent into the water and begins having a panic attack. But no matter what Karen's emotional reaction, Daredevil continues until he hits the bottom and comes to rest on the river's floor. The opening page is exquisite. I mean, it's just beautiful. And Daredevil is sinking, still stuck on the plane, he is nearly a limp ragdoll. Somewhat in the center left of the page. The thing is, the reason this composition works... Daredevil is drawn to be a part of the image. He is not the focus of the image. His red is a bit more muted, which does make it feel like he's underwater, by the way, unlike the cover. And oddly, if this image had Daredevil struggling or really, you know, going at it and trying to get free, I'm sorry, it would lose its punch. There is something to Daredevil resigned to his fate, with Karen on his mind. Let me kind of fill you in on what happened here, as this is the first issue... For me and my reading experience to stretch beyond my uninterrupted chronological reading run of Daredevil. In the week between last episode and preparing for this one, I basically crammed in issue 61 to this issue. That's my dedication to the show and to you. After Matt revealed his secret to Karen and promised to quit being Daredevil, he failed to deliver on the promise because of a villain called Crime Wave. And Karen left New York. She landed in Los Angeles, where she became a part of a cast of a show called Strange Secrets, which included a very kind of a murder-she-wrote story involving the actors on that show, which Daredevil got involved in when he followed Karen to L.A. Are you seeing a theme of Daredevil following Karen? So, Karen isn't as much a part of Daredevil's world as she used to be. She went and got herself a life, and it works for the character. She kind of feels like a real person now. And I don't hate her like I used to. I grew to understand Karen's position, not just with kind of what we explored in her childhood last week, but with Matt, you know, offering to quit being Daredevil and then retracting it when, say, the Stuntmaster shows up. And to look at it from Karen's point of view, if you're being upstaged by a guy like the Stuntmaster, maybe you deserve to have a chip on your shoulder. And the funniest part of that with the Stuntmaster is that when Karen eventually migrates over to Ghost Rider's comic, the Stuntmaster migrates with her for a while. Some days you can't get rid of Stuntmaster. And if you don't know who Stuntmaster is, feel better about yourself for that. Anyway, all of that to say, there was literal and figurative distance between Matt and Karen. And still, his potential last thoughts were of her. Aw, And Karen is losing her damn mind. Seeing Daredevil plunge into the water, she's convinced right out of the gate that he must be dead. That is her knee-jerk reaction. Stuff like this happens all the time to Daredevil. It'd be great if she gave him a bit of credit for being able to escape dire scenarios, as per usual. I mean, sure, if you and I get plunged into the ocean, there's a good chance we're dead, we're done, it's over. But for Daredevil, it's Tuesday. Conway rocks the story, by the way. He adds details, like captions, telling us how many seconds Daredevil has been underwater. One second, two seconds. Even though I'm not suspending disbelief that Daredevil's going to die at the end of this issue, it does get the pulse rate going faster which is really the most you can ask of a story showing a lead character in peril. But Conway hammers it home by having Matt actually sink all the way to the bottom of the river and land with this gentle crunch. This is an exquisite level of suspense, and these four pages masterfully do what they are intended to do, which is draw the reader in, even one who casually leafs through the comic at a newsstand. But of course, Daredevil doesn't die. So how does he get out of this rough spot? Let's get back to the story to find out. At the docks, a fancy limo drives to the landing, and out comes a red-haired woman in a trench coat. She sheds the trench coat to reveal a skin-tight body seat with tubed gauntlets on her wrists. The Black Widow stands revealed and dives into the water, swimming all the way down to the bottom, where she grabs the man without fear and drags him to the surface. And when Daredevil comes to, he is alone on the docks with his billy club lost in the water, and he takes off as Black Widow and her driver, Ivan, watch from a nearby alley. Later, as she is drying off in her hotel room, Black Widow feels slighted that Daredevil didn't acknowledge that she saved his life. Meanwhile, the owl speaks to his benefactor, a man sitting in the shadows who freed the owl to capture Daredevil, not kill him. The owl basically says, hey, step off, I'm going to do my business, and goes to brood about being surrounded by incompetence as Karen gets closer to her producer, Phil. Phil is comforting her, and a plot thickens to blackmail Foggy and kill Matt Murdock, a plan to be carried out by codename Assassin. Okay... (laughs) Let's stop. Let's talk about this. If you don't swoon at the Black Widow, regardless of your gender or preferences, there's something dead inside of you. She kicks eight kinds of ass. She makes a simple costume work for her in a big way. And she rolls into this book and owns it from Jump Street. It's no wonder she stays around and earns her name on the title of the book as well. There's no fretting. There's no wondering what she's got to do when she arrives. No, she's like, I got this. Jumps right out of the car, goes into action. Her first thought balloon appears when she's already underwater. As I've described, the Black Widow wears a set of wrist gauntlets or bracelets that look like tubes circling her wrist. One is her cable line that shoots out of the tube, launches a dart with an expanding hook, and grabs the edge of uh, ledges or flagpoles, what have you, and she can swing from that. The other gauntlet is her Widow Sting, which has bolts of incapacitating blasts, which, according to the Ohatmu entry, gives a bolt of 30,000 volts. Other than that, Natasha's pretty much all badass fighting skills she does have some similarities to nick fury and that she had a formula that slows her aging i want to note that the widow looks and this is going to come off wrong but hear me out the widow looks extremely sexy in this costume and i say that to say this the costume doesn't show any skin at all we have no cleavage no leg the only flesh available is maybe her neck and head more modern artists have added this zipper to the jumpsuit that allow her to show her ample attributes, you know what, that's not necessary. I know the criticism is, and rightfully so, that comics objectify women. Yet I look at Black Widow and I think she's extremely attractive without the more common trappings of cheesecake good girl art. Colin takes her seriously in his depiction. She isn't thrusting her ass out for no reason. When she dives into the water, it looks like a normal dive. The physics makes sense. I find her sexy because, wait for it, I respect her. She exudes strength. She exudes intelligence in her depiction. Yes, she frets a bit about potential curses, where the people she loves seem to get killed for their association with her, but if that happened to me, I would probably be a crying mess on the floor. There is no should I save him, shouldn't I save her. She jumps out of the car with her swift move, says, I got this, I own it. And we go underwater, and it has this murky blue, and it nails it. See, I'm claustrophobic. Kind of switching topics here. So... Being claustrophobic, the thought of being that deep in the water freaks me out. It's not that I can't go swimming in the deep end of the pool, but when you can't see the surface, that's when I lose it. And when reading this sequence, I felt myself get a bit anxious, and I found out I was holding my breath. You know, Michael Crichton, who was famous for writing Jurassic Park, wrote a novel called Sphere, and it took place in this underwater lab. I had a cold sweat through that novel, all the way through it. And oddly, the movie adaptation failed to induce any emotion in me. But this short underwater sequence was a condensed short version of that experience. It's all to the art. It's all on Gene Colon on this one. Because when it was over, I actually took a breath of relief. And when we were back on the docks again, I felt myself relax a little. And then Daredevil gets out of Dodge, but Black Widow takes us as a slight. Okay, We we had a gear switch there. We go from this powerful rescue to being upset that Daredevil didn't stick around to have a meet and greet. I get that perspective to an extent, but... You know, the dude almost died. He's still in rough shape, and you know, the obvious fact that Black Widow is hiding in a shadowy alley. Maybe the Black Widow does have a curse, the curse of all Bronze Age Marvel female characters to whine and complain, but she isn't nearly at Karen Page levels or in the magical stratosphere of Betty Brant's irrationality. Of course, Karen Page's irrationality also leads her into the arms of her producer, Phil. I mean, get it where you can, I guess? Karen loses her mind because the man she loves has apparently died, so she- when she wakes up, she decides to get it on with Phil, and, you know, we don't see the beast with two backs. But the scene definitely leads me to believe that there is some sexing going on in a moment. Because Karen's embracing Phil on the couch, just repeating, I need you, I need you, I mean, to me, that spells sex. I mean, read between the lines, hornheads. Uh, we dip into the owl a bit, who's being manipulated by yet another shadowy figure in the form of Codename Assassin. I have to say that this Codename Assassin costume has a... It has this flair about it that just... It sucks. It fucking sucks. He looks like the tip of a sex toy. Picture this scene. A customer walks into their local Adam and Eve, or creatively named Adult Boutique, which is normally a woman's name in the t- term toy box, and asks to purchase a villain for evil and self-satisfaction. I guarantee you that the, in the picture in your head of this scenario, the product that is purchased by the customer looks like quote, Name Assassin. Your mileage may vary, but you're not going to be far off. But we're not going to be going into that storyline as a whole, so let's get down to the part of the story we've been waiting for. Daredevil and Black Widow team up. Back at the DA's office, Foggy hears a noise in the next room and finds Daredevil staggering around. Meanwhile, the owl uses a high-tech ramming car to break into the treasury office, a commotion that the Black Widow hears a few blocks away at the bank. The widow swings into action, changing into her fighting togs to rain on the owl's parade with a shower of beatdowns, and Daredevil hears the fight from the office, hitches a cab to the location where he jumps into the fray as well, as the Black Widow is about to be overcome. Daredevil kicks the snot out of the owl and his goons, and then staggers around a bit, but the Black Widow chastises him for not thanking her for the whole, you know, saving his life thing. Too bad Daredevil blacks out in Black Widow's arms, and Codename Assassin closes out the book by fretting that the owl failed. And then, you know, he does more plotting. And that wraps up the synopses, so Matt gets back to the DA's office where Foggy comes upon him in Matt's office. Foggy still doesn't know. And yet, he still doesn't put the pieces together. He must assume that Daredevil just shows up in Matt's office for no apparent reason again and again. Foggy is a district attorney. He isn't just the DA of some small podunk town cut off from society with a low population. He's the DA of New York City. The biggest city in the world. Foggy is kind of a big deal. And he's even set up villains for a fall like the time he went to visit the gladiator in prison who was pretending to have amnesia. He pulled out an awesome move. By replacing the gladiator's blades with fake blades to get the villain to suit up and attempt to escape. That means he's admitted that he is and does remember being the gladiator. That was a smart move, and it worked. But he can't see the forest for the trees, or maybe Foggy is in denial. Eventually, Foggy finds out the secret. and Not until issue 348. Ugh. Uh, Anyway, enough on that. I've, I've made my point last week. Once we leave this scene in the law offices, it becomes high-octane action with Natasha more than holding her own. And let me touch upon her chauffeur, Ivan. He's actually kind of a surrogate father to her, and kind of took the age-regressing formula as well. Same thing Nick Fury took. And it was actually, as it turns out, developed by Bucky Barnes. Yet, he raised her when she was thrown out of a burning building as a baby. And yet, despite this, despite this, and, you know, I mean, we're talking about a guy that changed this girl's diapers. He taught her how to walk. To talk. So on. Despite all of that, Ivan has a romantic crush on Natasha. Creepy much? But he was her companion and her confidant and a nice way for Natasha to speak some exposition. So Black Widow springs into action. And as I mentioned, she's throwing down. She's holding her own. She just beats the hell out of these hired goons and never uses her widow's sting. I mean, we're talking all fists and feet. Skill. It's beyond effective. And even though she is throwing people over her shoulder, she isn't put into a sexy cheesecake pose. So... Once again, how can I not love this woman? In fact, it isn't until the owl takes her by surprise that the widow gets to any sort of a bind. And this provides an opening for Daredevil to come in and finish the job. And he makes it a quick job because he's on the verge of passing out. He is at the edge of his pain and exhaustion threshold, but he keeps pushing. And though Daredevil gets the final blow and promptly passes out, this was a really Black Widow's issue. And it's better for that. She rocks it out. And in just a fraction of these 19 pages proves why she's a good pairing for Daredevil. She has her own dark backstory, she's attractive, of course, and she can go toe-to-toe with the same villains and hold her own, or in some cases, exceed Daredevil's own prowess. To put the links together, after this, Natasha becomes a part of the cast, and the book becomes Daredevil and Black Widow. Matt moves to San Francisco and shacks up with her. This relationship would last until issue 125, when the Widow dumped Matt because she was tired of living in his shadow. And then she went on to become a core member of the Avengers and gain an ugly version of her costume. This plain gray bodysuit with a spider symbol on it horrible high collar soccer mom hair i'm sure there are people who like that look i will not begrudge that i'm not a fan i've seen it referred to as the mistakes were made black widow costume and i wonder if black widow in a mid-80s era black canary ever appeared on fashion police and had joan rivers tear them a new one while kelly osborne juliana rancic laugh awkwardly probably not because in either case joan rivers would have ended up in traction and the joan rangers would have put a bounty on the superheroes heads don't mess with the joan rangers but how was is this issue as a whole? Sure, it's a relevant step in the life and career of Daredevil. It builds a relationship that will come into play again and again. But as a standalone issue of Daredevil, it's mediocre. Nice character bits, but the main star of the book spends most of the issue unconscious or staggering around. Yes, Black Widow made a good addition to the issue and had some high moments, but this was a book published before the internet, or before Ohatmu. There could have been a bit more on her backstory, just to clue readers in at least identify her, and her, her gig, so to speak, and less on Codename Assassin and the ongoing shadowy plot. But as usual, Colin's art was grade A, and there were very captivating moments that drew the reader in. But even though Daredevil got the last punch in on the owl, he didn't save the day. And the owl was a bit laughable, with a crazy robbery scream, and playing errand boy for Codename Assassin. Readable! but pretty average, which is to say not a terrible issue to look at in a sequence, but doesn't quite blossom into a great well-rounded standalone issue if you'd gotten this off the spinner rack. Interesting note about the Black Widow, actually, before we wrap up this issue and move to your emails. At one time, Angie Bowie, as in the wife of David Bowie, had acquired the rights to do a Black Widow and Daredevil TV show. Angie Bowie recruited actor Ben Carruthers Of the Dirty Dozen to play Daredevil alongside her, really the project only got to some black and white snapshots of them in these costumes. We f***ing dodged a bullet, kids. No way around it. These costumes, while Angie Bowie looked pretty standard as Black Canary, Ben Carruthers as Daredevil... Well, it made me weep. The costumes were designed by the same person who designed the Ziggy Stardust costumes for David Bowie. Those went off well. Carruthers' Daredevil costume, for one thing, he wasn't quite built right. He was a very, he had very olive skin, very dark hair, which shouldn't matter in the Daredevil costume. However, this costume was, um, I mean, it was a skin tight Lycra suit with a hood and these horns that were, I mean, he looked more like a bull than a Daredevil because the horns should usually be in nubs. We're not looking at Hellboy here, but it stopped just uh, above his forehead. The mask portion was face paint, red face paint. And the poses that these two were in, their arms were held high, hands out, like they're flying. Uh, you, you almost want to say, what, what kind of religious ritual are they practicing? But, you know, at least that was on somebody's mind, I guess, is the silver lining. And Black Widow and, and Daredevil as a couple were captivating enough to capture somebody's attention. Because, I mean, she did pay for the rights to do this show. It just never materialized. I'm just saying, Rex Smith looked good compared to this. Look up Angie Bowie and Ben Carruthers' Daredevil. I'll uh, try to remember to put pictures on the show notes this week. But that wraps up the story. Before we say goodbye for the week, let's check the email inbox for your messages, which is one of my favorite parts of the show. This week, do we have any emails? Yes, we do. We have lots of emails this week, which makes me very, very happy. You know, one of my goals was to use this show as a bit of a sounding board for other fans of Daredevil, as well as my views. So we all have a place to kind of share our thoughts and feelings. So if you have a thought on my thoughts or random Daredevil ideas or opinions, drop me a line at Dave at Daredevilpodcast.com or use the handy form at Daredevilpodcast.com. And you can join the ranks of the fine folks that emailed in this week. Starting this week is Professor Allen, who emailed in with the subject line, Loving the New Podcast. And Professor Allen writes, Dave, I'm very much enjoying the new Daredevil show. I really like the idea of picking critical issues throughout the history of the character and book without the burden of having to cover every single issue or appearance. I like the unpredictability and flexibility this will bring to the show. My only complaint so far, not enough Legion of Superheroes. Wait, never mind. Keep up the good work, Professor Allen, host, The Quarter Bin Podcast, co-host, Short Box Showcase. Both of those shows, by the way, and this is Dave talking here, are part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, or and, and, and they are on my recommended podcast list. Professor Allen. Well met. Hail Doom, who is above reproach. Thank you for slipping this email in under the variant Communications Embargo. Well done, sir. And I agree, these stories could use more Legion. I mean, picture it. Daredevil with a flight ring hanging out with a wildfire. I would read that, and I think Mark Wade would love to write that. See, I picture Daredevil and Karate Kid dealing with whatever the 31st century version of The Hand would be, and Daredevil gets into an odd romance with Duo Damsel. Well, now wait a minute. I like where this is going. I think after this, I have some fan fiction to write. Before I steam up my microphone, why don't I look at the next email, which is from Jared Cardos. I remember Jared from New 52 Adventures of Superman. His subject is the first three episodes. Jared writes, first, I just want to say how excited I am to see where this podcast goes. Like a lot of the Marvel characters of his time, Daredevil is one of those characters who I've mostly read a lot of his more modern runs, but this will be a good excuse to go into his more classic stuff. And as for these six issues you pulled out, I can't really disagree with your assessment overall. First issue is pretty solid, the rest are mostly okay, serviceable, they get the job done. Your idea about how Miller could have put his ideas with the kingpin on the owl is interesting. I'd never thought of that, and while I'm sure Miller could have pulled it off, I'm guessing the reason why he went with old Fisk is that this character has an interesting look to him, where he could appear to be soft or frightening depending on what he's going for, and frankly his name sounds more frightening. Snyder's done a fairly decent job in recent comics to make the concept of owls very creepy, But saying that the Owl wants you dead just doesn't have the same threat factor that the Kingpin wants you dead, just from the sound of it alone. One thing I will sort of disagree with you, though, is your assessment that Karen Page is the worst of the Silver Age Marvel girlfriends. Now, like I said, I don't have much knowledge of her classic stuff outside of Born Again, which isn't really the which isn't really her greatest moment. But you can't help but feel sorry for her. Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh in the middle of that. But uh, yeah, that's that's a great statement. She's not at her best in that one. Anyway, back to his email, I'm sorry. But for what I'm seeing here, while she is rather insensitive concerning Matt's disability, that's really about it. Compare her to, say, Spider-Man's first girlfriend, Betty Brant, who was a jealous wench, who was passive-aggressively stringing around two guys, and Karen's practically a saint right now. Finally, it's interesting that you say you don't care that much about the Purple Man when talking about this issue, but my question is, what do you think of how he's been portrayed in more modern stories, especially in how he was used in Alias? One thing I'm surprised you didn't mention when talking about the scene where Spidey fights the crooks that were after Matt, the first time he meets Spider-Man, he's defending what he thinks is a defenseless blind man from trouble. Matt got his powers from saving a defenseless blind man from trouble. The two situations aren't completely the same, but I do think it's an interesting connection and I think one could take that as part of why Daredevil would end up working together so well with Spider-Man later on. Using Google Maps to figure out Daredevil's commute, that's some hardcore nerdery right there. I give kudos. Thank you. As for the Gladiator issue, one detail that you didn't say that I noticed was that Stanley didn't write the whole issue. At the first page, it mentions that Stanley wrote the first seven pages, and that Denny O'Neill finished up the rest. And as for Karen Page leaving the scene from the description boxes, it sounds like she told them about what happened to Foggy, but it would have looked a lot better for her if we did get a dialogue balloon begging them to find Foggy and make sure he's safe. So yes, this is a great podcast so far, and I'm looking forward to hearing more. Jared Cardos. Jared, as to your first point, there are a lot of people who are getting it at Daredevil thanks to Wade's run, which is one of the wonderful things about the timing of the show. You combine that with the upcoming Netflix series. Well, I'd love to say that my infinite wisdom of what fandom wants and needs is behind the timing. No, let's stick with that. It sounds cool then my infinite wisdom of what my fandom wants. Um, I stick by my owl idea. I'm going to disagree on the kingpin as a name sounding more threatening than an owl, because owls are predatory creatures and smart hunters. A kingpin makes me think of bowling. Now, this is a good thing, because when I think of bowling, I think of the big Lebowski. And that makes me happy, since it is, and I say this with genuine and complete sincerity, the greatest movie to ever grace the silver screen. However, I'm, I'm not saying your opinion isn't valid, I'm just disagreeing with it. Owl has a similar backdrop of Wilson Fisk. They both have criminal empires, had a similar gimmick. They're both deceptively strong, and the owl can fly. Kingpin don't fly, guys. Owl's got the one-up on that one. But I, I I don't think he made an error, per se, um, that co-opting Spidey's villain was invalid in any way. I'm simply saying there is another character organic to Daredevil that could have been used in his stead. And I'll agree with you, I think the look of the kingpin was probably the selling point. I remember Miller telling a story on the DVD interview about John Byrne kind of coming up to him and talking about uh, helping him craft his take, and Byrne told Miller to light him. Which is why, and we'll get to this in the run, Miller has the Kingpin looking just like he stepped off a Romita Spidey page. Kingpin lights a cigarette, and when the flame goes out, he becomes ensconced in shadow. He looks like a Frank Miller character. Miller did Kingpin a favor, and I'm going to say this, and I might rub some Spider-Man fans the wrong way, no disrespect intended, but I think Kingpin's appearance in the Daredevil comic did Kingpin a solid. It kind of raised his profile as a, as a villain. And as for Karen Page, yeah, I was, I was a bit rough. And I admitted that future stories influenced that quite a bit. And I do think last week's issue swayed my opinion a bit. To tell you the truth, I think the relationship between these two is a toxic one. They're both guilty. I mean, you've seen that where two people are pretty decent people on their own, but as a couple, they destroy each other and everything around them. These two needed to stay the hell away from each other. I mean, they both have baggage and it's weighing them down. And it's quite unfair to lay the lion's share of the blame on Karen. Even in the Hulk, Betty Ross was nearly as bad in the early issues of the Hulk. And nobody, and I mean nobody, compares to Betty Brand. And that was a good observation on Spidey and Daredevil's first meeting paralleling Matt's origin. I actually did not catch that. I'm surprised I didn't. And as for the Google Maps thing, it was there. It seemed like a neat thing to do. Um, I like to look for those moments where I can do something a little bit different. Anyway, the purple man, you know, I'll be honest with you, he still doesn't grab me. Um, some of the modern takes have me kind of like, oh, that's kind of nice. He's just there. And I don't know why it is that, but it is what it is. But thanks, Jared. A lot of good points. Uh, next up is an email from Socrates Alvarez III. Subject line is great show. Ah, oh, Socrates, you're flattering me. That's gonna get you everywhere. Socrates writes, "I've been a huge DD fan since the Kevin Smith revamp till now. I also really enjoy the earlier stuff. I like the format of the show. Start to finish is a lot of work, and the casts that practice this format really hit snags when the material is poor. Daredevil is way more than a poor man's Spidey or Marvel's Batman. DD Decalogue story in Daredevil Volume two, 71 to seventy-five, is so cool. Best regards, Socrates Alvarez the Third. And you know." Socrates, your email and suddenly Jared's email, something clicked in my head just now. And I think you've brought out something really fundamental about the character here. Daredevil has a ton of great entry points, as in places to jump on. Kevin Smith's Guardian Devil was the first hard relaunch of Daredevil from issue one, and it came out swinging, much to many people's surprise. Jump ahead where we have Mark Wade's relaunch in 2011. Same thing, same response. The thing those two have in common, those two relaunches, both decided to look back at the roots of the character and the base starting point and take those main elements that were there at the beginning. I mean, sure, you have writers like David Mack, Brian Michael Bendis that build on that. But every time Daredevil is put back at square one, which mirrors to a greater or lesser extent the base status quo from the character's early years, And bear in mind, I'm not on a tangent, Socrates. I'm actually... Your email has spurred a lot of thought in me. What I'm saying, in effect, is whether it is Smith's run or Wade's run that was the latter-day entry point, Daredevil fans have it good because of the core similarity in launch points. Look at characters like Superman, who is probably the prime example. You have differing degrees of reboot value. If you compare the original Action Comics number one to 1986's Man of Steel number one, to Grant Morrison's Action Comics number one. Yes, the core concept hasn't changed, but the palette has massively, massively been altered. You have three different types, very different Kryptons, different vantage points, slightly different costumes, and different tones. But if you compare the original Daredevil number one, Smith's DD number one, and Wade's number one, Matt's the same. Strikingly so. You have the backdrop of the law office. The powers work the same way. The backstory, they are all the same. Same current running through them. Even on the Marvel side, Spider-Man's reboots. You can't say that with. Look at Amazing Spider-Man number one and 1990s uh, Spider-Man number one. The the ejectiveless McFarlane issue. Uh, Wow, that's a huge difference. And granted, that's not a reboot. That's more of an addition. But if you look at the John Byrne chapter one, it, it ties things together in a different way. It has a different focus. It has a different feel and goal. Maybe that says that more than other characters, Daredevil wasn't as refined out of the box as it might seem. Because really the biggest thing we've seen was a a tweak to the costume from the yellow and brown to the red. Essentially Daredevil's smaller little bits, devices in his billy club, things like that, have gone the wayside. But essentially Daredevil hasn't been massively broken down and changed in any permanent fashion since the beginning. Anyway, <laughs> Socrates, that struck me out of the gate. That's what it suddenly made me realize that, you know, you and I came at it from different places, but we kind of look at things like Decalogue as, man, that's a really good DD story. And we can all agree that your statement also points out, because you, you say it in the email, but you say it by making by, by crafting the email that Daredevil is more than a poor man's Spider-Man and Marvel's Batman. And the, what I just went through, my little tangent there, is why he is more. You basically just proved the point of the show. Well, that's a great, a great podcast. I'm de- No, kidding, kidding. And on that topic, you said podcasts could be a lot of work. They can. Now, when you're enjoying yourself and you're really having a good time, it doesn't feel as much. It's a labor of love, but it doesn't feel as much work. It's when things are going wrong and scheduling doesn't work, you're having technical issues, that's when it becomes work. I wouldn't even say that bad material will make it work because I kind of expect to and maybe even plan on pulling just some lackluster daredevil comes. I mean, I just want. I might just pull just a crappy, crappy issue. Because sometimes I think tearing up the bad material can be as fun as enjoying the good material. I don't think it has to be miserable. As I said, Decalogue, you and I come from different places. We both enjoy that story, and it is excellent. And I do plan on getting on that way down the line. Bet on that one. But thanks for emailing in. I do appreciate that because you spur a lot of good conversation. You and Jared Cardos are very welcome to email in. Next up is an email from Jeff Gibson, whose subject line is the show. Jeff writes, Dave, first off, thank you for doing a Daredevil podcast and being consistent with it. I'm really enjoying it so far. Glad to hear that. You asked for critiques in your last show. I don't have a critique, but I thought I would tell you what I think works well. You got off on a tangent about comparing DD and Batman and rolled with it. I think that stuff is great. While I enjoy the way you analyze the comics, I like it when you kind of break free from time to time and talk about different things. That's it. Keep up the good show, Jeff. Uh, Jeff, as you just saw, got off on a tangent thing is if I get off on that, if there's enough of a conversation there that I follow through on the tangent and I'm careful not to stymie myself because I've done that before or if I get off on an idea and suddenly I'm I'm starting to c- argue with myself, that's not entertaining but some of the tangents are kind of they're nice filler, they're nice stuff to chew on and if it's entertaining and I'm editing the episode, I'll leave it in. So, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I do write I don't know if you'd call it a script but I, I'm very detailed outline with the expectation that i'm going to abandon that at some point because when you're sitting there taking notes and reading through the issue that's one thing but to be looking at it and thinking about it critically and speaking about it as in unloading all of that uh, you might come up across some gems for example look at new 52 adventures of superman a show i did with john m wilson half the time we discovered all our best stuff while on the air But that wraps up the email sections this week. Lots of good emails. Really do appreciate it. If you didn't hear yours, it's because what I do is anytime I'm about to record on recording day, I will go to the inbox, call anything that's in there, and then clean it out for that week. So if you don't hear it and you recently put put an email in, remember that I am several weeks ahead. I will get to your email, each and every one. Of course, as mentioned up front, drop me a line at dave at with your thoughts, compliments, or criticisms. Next week, a big one, a big episode, the debut of an important nemesis to the Daredevil canon, one without compare. Next week, we look at the first appearance of Bullseye in Daredevil number 131. That's in seven short days. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Never far
1: away Fight for what is right for you tonight
0: Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com To subscribe to the show you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week.